One of the nice things about hosting a podcast is that it provides me with the opportunity to engage with thought leaders whom I otherwise would not have met. Today's guest on Raising Your Antenna is someone who has been a sustainability thought leader for multiple vantage points. As a journalist, NGO board member and advocate, climate change summit delegate, and sustainable finance investor. Sasha Beslik, in his role as managing director and head of sustainable finance at Jay Safra, has a powerful pulpit in which to motivate and mobilize his industry to unleash the power of its capital to mitigate carbon emissions and climate change. On today's episode of Raising Your Antenna, Sasha, with both candor and transparency, points out the peculiarity of how the Paris Climate Conference overlooked the impact of the financial services industry on climate change, addresses how corporations must close the gap between the values they profess and the behaviors that they employ, and by the way, gives examples of companies that are doing it right and those that are not, and is a special treat for me engaged me in a conversation about marketing as it relates to the profound impact investment decisions have on the environment and carbon mitigation. Back with Sasha in the twinkling of an eye. You're listening to Raising Your Antenna with host Keith Sackheim. Sasha, welcome to Raising Your Antenna. Thanks a lot, Keith. It's a pleasure to be here and talk to you. Yes, uh, so the feeling is mutual. And Sasha, before we jump into a number of issues and items that I know the two of us are both passionate about and looking forward to discussing, you know, our listeners always enjoy understanding and learning uh, from our guests in terms of their career trajectory and what their journey was like. So if you don't mind sharing that for the next couple of minutes, uh, I know everybody would appreciate that. And then we'll get into the questions. Sure, I can do that. Basically, my life and, and career journey are closely interrelated for some reason. I managed to escape the war at Balkans in 1993, and I came to Sweden, where I got education and started working '98 as the journalist and the freelancing journalist war correspondent for, uh, for a year and a half almost for UNICEF and Red Cross newspapers and some other newspapers. And then eventually I went on to work for oil and gas business on social and environmental issues in various places in the world, in Africa and in former Soviet Union countries. And then 2003, I was recruited to start to work and develop the first sort of ethical investments in the Nordic region. So that was my entry point into the financial industry. So since 2003, I've been working with what is today known as sustainable investments both for big banks and big asset managers. And, and currently I live in Switzerland and Zurich where I work for uh, one of the leading private banks uh, in this area called J. Saracen. So that's the short sort of a version of 20, 20 years. Appreciate that. And yeah, and I, I think maybe some of those experiences will probably uh, surface a little bit in our discussion today. No doubt it seems like you're a citizen of the world and being a journalist and having... I guess, set on uh, the fossil fuel side of the economy, as well as, um, you know, now being on the sustainable finance side, I'm sure gives you a really interesting perspective and look forward to hearing all about that. So, you know, Sasha, when we had our pre-podcast prep call a few weeks ago, the world obviously looked uh, very different. And at the time you remarked, yes. yeah, and at the time you remarked on the investment boom that characterizes the sustainable finance world, 
So I'm going to break up this initial question into really two questions. A, let's rewind to three weeks ago when we spoke and, and kind of unpack that boom, both the impetus for it as well as kind of how you think uh, it's, you know, the behavior of it and, and how that's being manifest. Um, so we'll start with that. And the second uh, question as a follow-up will be, let's fast forward uh, to, let's say, one to two months from now when hopefully this craziness is behind us or at least beginning to get behind us. Um, and maybe you can give your best estimate as to what the climate, no pun intended, will be for sustainable uh, finance at that time? You know, hopefully two or three months, or uh, I don't know exactly how long time it will take us to pass this this uh, very, very sort of a deep situation and, and troubles we are in right now due to this uh, coronavirus. I think that the, the need and the urge for the new sort of economic system, including the financial industry from, from sustainability point of view will be even more important. And as an answer to your first question, I think one of the sort of the leading motives behind sustainable investments from beginning uh, was, you know, doing, doing good uh, things, but also in the same time being commercial and making the investments and making money. There's nothing wrong about that. And I think it was also back in 2003 and four and five, before the crash 2008, it was quite obvious that the financial industry and the system as we have built it is not as sustainable as it is. And what is going on right now, there's an interrelation to what is going on right now. You can clearly see how how stretched and not thorough, uh, not stable uh, the financial system that we have built is uh, and, and how how interdependent the real economy and finance in, in principle are and what does it mean for for the countries around the world in the next, I think this could take us almost like 10 years to, to get out of this situation where we are in. What does it take for the reforms on the economic side uh, now after Corona uh, in a sustainable way? How can we build a future financial and economic system? I think that will be the big question for many people around the world, both in the U.S., but also in Europe and Asia and some other places. Yeah, I, I, I think that that sounds about right. And, and um, you know, one of the things I think that's interesting, uh, and I was, you know, I thought maybe we'd talk about it later, but it's actually a good segue into it right now is, you know, there is so much more interdependence um, and, you know, globalization and, and you know, there's no financial market in one country that really can isolate itself uh, from the you know, financial climate in another country or continent or, or region. Um, and, you know, one of the things that, that people uh, are starting to think about is, you know, when you look at this current pandemic, uh, you know, it's always easy to have, you know, 2020 vision after the fact. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, people see now what happens when there's a lack of preparedness for a global crisis. Uh, and um, whether it's shortages, whether it's, you know, healthcare systems being overwhelmed, whether it's other contingency plans, you know, clearly there was a lack of preparedness, even though for decades there were credible people, you know, in the health community and government that were warning governments uh, to begin to prepare for this. And, and the analog to climate change uh, and, 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 and the, the, you know, the extreme weather events or other consequences of climate change, I think is pretty profound that, that, that comparison in the sense that, you know, now we're two decades into, to there being, uh, you know, a real, 
um, clarion call for preparedness and for mitigation. Uh, and to date, there's been a deaf ear. Uh, but, you know, what are your thoughts about maybe once we emerge from the throes of this, uh, you know, the whole notion of getting out ahead and preparing for, again, what's going to be a globalized, right? None of these crises are now isolated to a country. They're all global crises that impact everybody. Climate change will be no different. Will this be a shot of adrenaline to the arm of government and to corporate, you know, the corporate world to begin to prepare for uh, what could be, again, you know, a global crisis that is not going to be months, but could be much longer? Yeah, I mean, what you're pointing at is, is it's really interesting because you could use a metaphor in terms of that we have the climate change and the issues related to climate change are unfolding for the last, you know, 25 years every day around the world, but we don't see them that way. So basically you can, you can, you can think of it as, as, uh, you know, the latest fires in, in Australia, we would have, uh, if you compare it with, uh, with, uh, with this Corona thing is that climate change, we have fires all around the world every day right now. And the thing is that we don't see it that way. And the reason for that is, that it's it's not as visible and it's not as deadly in the short term as as this virus is for the human race, and that is sort of going back to the way how we perceive things, seeing things from more behavioral point of view. That we think very often that we are long term sort of oriented, we have long term plans, but in fact, in many cases, even in this this sort of a case with the virus, it clearly shows that we are very short sighted. We have built a very short-sighted systems with a, with a response, sort of a time to response that is that it's not that uh, thought through, and and that's one of the challenges I think we can clearly see in relation to if you compare this with a with the climate change. I mean, climate change will not stop. Currently, we have yes, uh, we are not producing things, and the emissions have gone down, especially in China and some other places. Uh, you know, the water in Venice are nice and you can see the fish and all of these things. But, you know, when things go back to normal, uh, they need to go back to normal in a sustainable way. We cannot afford to have this unfolding in front of us, you know, in, in three or five years time. And I think that is this is exactly what is waiting. And I also think it's fair to say when we talk about this. One of the things that I've been looking at is what is the what are the causes of, of of coronavirus, you know, related to climate change. And there's an obvious correlation between the increased <clears throat> temperature in a part of the world, especially in, in Asia where you have birds migrating in a completely different patterns than before. And also by migration, they are also bringing with them different types of viruses and bacteria through the time of year where they usually were not. And these are the things that we cannot, we, we, there is no clear correlation, but there is a some correlation. And, you know, I don't want to be pessimistic, but I think from, from the point of view of, of, of viruses and different kinds of things that will hit humanity going forward, there will always be some kind of a correlation to climate change and the patterns that could vary on the regional level, but they will definitely be something that will have implications on a global scale. And that's what we need to handle. That's what we need to manage going forward. And financial industry is, as you know, global as much as the virus is. And if virus, I mean, happens in one part of the world and spreads to another, that basically, in fact, it impacts one industry that is true global citizen, and that is financial industry. You move money from one part of the world to another in a matter of seconds. So, I mean, we need to act, and we need to act now. 
Yeah, agreed. And so much of this also becomes political will. And, and as you said, um, you know, I think that this is in general, maybe how human beings are hardwired, which is really to generally just think about the short term and, and, and have problems with delayed gratification. And when you're talking about preparedness and investing money in issues and problems that could emerge down the road, need to have really strong leaders are willing to do that at the expense of today. So um, yeah, I, I think, uh, I think, I think what you said uh, makes a lot of sense. You know, should there are a lot of Johnny come lately's um, to sustainable or green finance. Uh, some because of yeah. a better late than never epiphany that climate change mitigation will demand a massive investment of capital. You know, I've heard debt financing numbers as high as 60 trillion. Some are Johnny come yeah. lately's, you know, because of the stick. So shareholder government mandates and others because of the carrot, the potential to do well financially by doing well socially, which is what you mentioned before. You know, when looking at your career, Sasha, and your current position as managing director and head of sustainable finance at Jay Safra, you are anything but a Johnny come lately. So your perspective in terms of what is possible to tomorrow based on what has been done yesterday, I think is more insightful than most. With that as a background, you know, the special report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which again issued a few years ago already, but you know, it issued a call to limit CO2 emissions to 420 gigatons in order to stay below the global warming limit of two degrees set by the Paris Climate Agreement. So that's a mouthful. Um, and again, those numbers are well known and they've kind of, you know, they become, I guess, iconic numbers in terms of what our um, you know, what our goals are, but what's the role of sustainable finance in achieving that ambitious goal? You know, the tools, allocations, and also the business upside of doing it. I mean, going back to a couple of years to Paris, when the Paris was in, uh, in the sort of uh, in the media and all of these things, the funny thing about being in Paris, and I participated as observer in many of these climate negotiations over the years, was the fact that the financial industry uh, was one of the industries in the world, global industries, that never got any sort of uh, emission caps uh, allocated to them, which was very funny. And uh, the reason for that was that, that people initially, when they were discussing this, the emission uh, targets and how to tackle climate change throughout the various industries didn't perceive financial sectors having any other role than just lending and financing it. And and but w when you take a step back, then you realize that nothing of the of the you know agreements that have been reached uh, recently uh, on how to curb these emissions and and uh, tackle climate change can be accomplished without well functioning and truly sustainable financial industry that is not investing uh, uh, you know lending money on one side to a company that they will avoid on the investment side just to be on the right side of the of the sort of a moral stick uh, so the importance and the toolbox for me financial industry is a global toolbox and you can use toolbox to uh, produce uh, you know uh, tanks and, and warships and you can use toolbox to produce uh, hospitals schools and things that will evolve societies and that depends on what mission financial industry have and what fiduciary duty we have and this is something that hasn't been discussed it will be discussed i think after this crisis with, with corona even more so how is this industry geared to actually uh, contribute to the prosperity of the societies where it operates and that is both political discussion but i also think discussion within the sector 
uh, without financial sector reallocating resources that we sit on today, that we manage and lend, uh, there will be no way that we can reach the, 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 the target set in in Paris in terms of tackling and the climate change and curbing the emissions. And just to give an example, so you will have all capital managed in the world today, I think it's about 10, maybe 12%. Uh, some people, depending how you count, will say it's 30. Uh, but let's say it's something somewhere in between. Let's say it's 20% of the capital in the world today that is managed in a sustainable way. What it means is that the, the investors in that case would choose companies that they believe correspond with their values and correspond with the sustainability preferences they have. Uh, not necessarily sustainable, but it looks good in many cases. And then you imagine that with one hand you have 20 and another hand you have 80 and this 80 is invested in completely different direction every day uh, throughout the year. So the problem is that we cannot do one thing, you know, there is no consistency with the approaches. So you cannot have the target set in Paris that will be a national target uh, on a GDP level and not having financial industry contribute to that because then it becomes very counterproductive. So alignment of goals and alignment of toolboxes is what we need. And we are not there yet. We are getting there. But now, given what, what crisis we are going through right now, my big question is, you know, how much courage and how much strength we will have after this to really sort of take this take this uh, the, the challenge uh, for what it is. Yeah, and, and piggybacking, I think, off off those comments, um, you know, ESG is the latest buzzword in the investment community. Um, you know, for those who are unaware, ESG stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance. And uh, the history of ESG is interesting, I think, and as in some ways a reaction to the Friedman Doctrine, which argued, and for a long time this was kind of the guiding principle of, of companies, that a company's only responsibility is to maximize shareholder value. Over time, however, and certainly in the last, I'd say, five to ten years, uh, both companies and shareholders, or I should say some companies and shareholders, have come to realization that maximizing shareholder value at the expense of their stakeholders uh, was both unfair and counterproductive. And you know, a company's stakeholders go way beyond shareholders to include its employees, customers, suppliers, distributors, communities, neighbors, and the environment. So you know, hence a commitment to ESG emerged, which in theory would mandate investments in areas such as the environment that would redound to the benefit of all stakeholders. You know, now, as ESG has taken off, sure. financial institutions have begun to mandate kind of these behavioral and social changes in the companies that they invest in. You know, Sasha, let's put aside the government and social piece, although social, social certainly is inextricably bound with, with environment, but let, let's focus on the environment. What are you seeing on the ESG front? Does the E, does the e of ESG get short shrifted when compared to the G? And what would be your guidance to the captains of capital and industry as they make these ESG investment and business decisions? I, it's, it's a very, very good question. Thanks for that. And I think that, that we can start with the fact that the current analysis that is done all around the world, and I'm talking about the big asset managers and asset owners and also the big research houses, on E side of ESG is done on the behalf of how these companies operate environmental risk in their own in their own operations, not in relation to their products and services. So to make it very simple, 
they look in the way how companies implement their own policies and how they run their offices and electricity and you know how much of the emissions do they cause in their own factories but not what products and services these companies produce what environmental impact and emissions caused by these products and services actually creating and that's that, what that, that and, and, and that right. includes that includes what supply chain other you know distributors supply, so supply, yeah supply chain distributors so, so imagine if i would rate you on your values not on what you do okay right 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 so that, that will be sort of a cool and so so you tell me you tell me in a call in a call look i have environmental values and all of these things and then you do something completely different and I can clearly see in your home that you have, you know, recycling bin and all of these things. But then in the same time, you know, what you do is something completely different. So most of the companies are rated on their values. And most of the analysis that is done is very old in terms of the, 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 the timing because most of the reporting is one year old. Uh, annual reports, you know, are usually rate companies what they've done on 200. Uh, 2018, uh, you'd make a decisions for 2019. So we are looking at the performance of the companies in their own operations from 2019, uh, and I'm investing in a forward-looking scenarios. So the problem is, how do we get the data and information on the product and service level, which is the forward-looking thing? That will revolutionize the industry. That will also revolutionize the way how you can can invest capital flows in the solutions and in the companies that are scalable in terms of what they contribute with their products and services. Let me give you an example, and a real company example. So well-known company, Swedish company called Hennes Maritz, you know, clothing industry, fast fashion. Uh, one of the best in their sector, best in the world, uh, AAA or AA rated by many agencies, but their business model is completely unsustainable. The reason for that is that the products that they produce, resources they use, the amount of and the volumes they use is completely unsustainable in regards to uh, both environmental issues, but also to certain extent social issues. So this is a clear example, you see, and you can find this company in many portfolios around the world that are deemed themselves sustainable and deemed as sustainable investors because they invest in a sort of a very static way, not in a, in a more dynamic way, looking at the, what the products and services are. That that totally makes sense. Uh, you know, again, I think one of the things that our listeners will enjoy about this conversation is that uh, you are candid and, and you're willing to to say what you think. Let's you know. I, you, you mentioned, uh, I guess, one company that you think is 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 probably not doing this the right way. Can you give us examples of of some companies that you've seen that you think really are, uh, you know, making not just the value changes, but I think what you're saying is the behavioral changes uh, in the right direction. Yeah. Yeah, I can give you one company from the same sector and then give you another name of the company that is an American company is in the US. I visited them several times. I actually did a film about them, which I think it's 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 so cool that they are doing what they're doing. But I start with a with a company in the same sector. So if you compare H&M with Patagonia, which is completely which is a retail, um, you know, clothing company, but uh, is where the business model they run is completely sustainable. When you enter the offices and when you go to their webpage, they they encourage you not to buy new clothes, but to reuse them. And the model they use is completely different in terms of the volumes and so on. They don't have 13 seasons a year. They have two or three. 
uh, and the way how they produce their products uh, and uh, in the way how they source their products is completely different from, from H&M. So that will be the one. There is one company in the world that I, that I admired for a number of years, an American company called Hexel. And it's based in the U.S. and I've visited them several times. They are producing uh, carbon components for military uh, and commercial flights, uh, planes. And this is the company that uh, is throughout its technology and, you know, innovation and the way how they produce things are decreasing the weight of the planes by 70%, which in terms of, of, of uh, you know, fuel consumption is giving that the industry will grow, hopefully, after all of this uh, in the next uh, five to 10 years. It's a fantastic example of how this company, many portfolios in the world, in a many sustainable people sort of a traditional eyes would not fit because they produce components for aircrafts in, in the military industry and that's unmoral in especially in europe in many other places uh, will actually be much better choice uh, to tackle climate change than many other investments that will not have that scale so these are the things that you need to sort of uh, bring into the perspective to understand what are the sort of the, the true sustainable investments are about investing in the businesses and in the companies that throughout their products and services have a positive impact on on future from both environmental and social point of view not companies that are through their values aligned with with a sort of a politically correct uh, sentiments or narratives that we have today yeah um and that's actually a great i think uh uh, segue point into the next, uh, you know, uh, I- uh, issue that I wanted to discuss with you. And just in terms of commenting on how you kind of described the challenge that, you know, we have as shareholders, as stakeholders in being able to analyze and assess which companies are either just paying, you know, lip service to values or actually signaling their yeah. behavior in real uh, in, in a real, um, in a real sense, uh, you know, I think, you know, what's interesting is, is, you know, you mentioned Patagonia. So Patagonia has done a great job, um, both of being true to its mission, but also of marketing its behavior and its values. Um, and I think most people who are in the know somewhat who care about sustainability, if you said to them, give me one brand, uh, that you think of when you think about sustainable manufacturing, um, when you think about, uh, sensitivity to the environment, um, they'll all say Patagonia, but you mentioned another company, uh, <laughs> right? But you mentioned another company, yeah. Hexel, that seems to be doing incredible things as well that nobody knows about. And I think that goes to marketing. And you know, I, uh, you know, my, my agency, Antenna, we've been doing uh, marketing for renewable companies and energy technology companies for years. But typically, it's been on the innovation side um, and on the disruption side, and that tends to get uh, most of the ink. Um, and most of the hype, uh, and on the sustainability side, and I know you're going to speak a little, speak to sustainable finance and those marketing challenges, but even just on the manufacturing side, on the retail side, um, companies that really are uh, greening their supply chain, companies that are creating business models uh, around sustainability, uh, many of those companies um, are not marketing it effectively, uh, and um, you know, once they do, it tends to have a ripple effect of, you know, of, 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 of companies imitating other companies. Um, and uh, so it's a shame and there's definitely an opportunity cost there. But let's, let's get back to just in general financial institutions, um, green finance, 
organizations improving their marketing game. And, and when we spoke before, you got very passionate about the need for people to understand what sustainable finance is, its objectives, and why it's so critical to climate change mitigation. Um, can you elaborate on that, both the challenges that you've seen or the dearth of marketing you've seen and why you think that is, and then some of the primary messages that you think need to be articulated immediately? I mean, this is so good question. I'm so happy that you are asking that because most of the people will understand correlation if you, you know, recycle and don't take plane, uh, it will cut your emissions. But most of the people do not understand that they are through their pension and investment they, they have every day around the world, uh, these emissions are between 26 and 28 times higher per person because they own the shares in the companies and by doing so, they actually contribute to the climate change every day. Uh, although they are recycling and teaching their kids to, uh, you know, to eat organic and not eat meat. So this is very interesting. People don't get this. And when they get it, then they start to can understand you explain the that? importance can, can of- Can you actually explain that a little more? So, so just again, 26 to 28 times higher more the more yes, yes. So just explain it again because I, I just want to make sure that's clear sure sure so basically what i did a couple of years ago is that uh, when i worked for one of the biggest banks in in nordics is to calculate the average savings that uh, the, you know a person can do by you know buying organic and not taking uh, flights taking train not eating meat and all these things and then i compared that, that amount of co2 savings that the person can do on the on the average uh, by uh, I compared that with uh, with the pension uh, savings that person had by looking at the, what this person had the pension money it's on the average in, in a Nordic region and uh, the number we came up with after calculating that is that the emissions CO2 emissions in your pension money is 27 times more of what you save uh, from you know not riding a plane by train but train and the avoiding meat and and you know stuff like that so, I, so, I would, so, so, so that basically is, what you're saying is is if you compare the let's call it day-to-day behavior versus financial behavior yeah. the amount of yeah. carbon emissions that you're mitigating on the financial behavior side is that is 26 to 28 times higher yeah so wow. because your emissions wow. You, you don't think, yes, and this is what people don't think about because they think, you know, what I do here today now and, you know, I buy Tesla. And most of the people buy Tesla. They're very wealthy, at least in the Nordic region. I guess they are the same thing in, in the U.S. Teslas are not so, so uh, cheap cars. And most of these people have also fat and, and very good pension savings and investments. And then these investments are, in principle, killing the Tesla sort of effect every day because they are invested all around the world in the companies that are high emitters. So this is, people need to get to understand this. We don't, if we don't get the financial flows out of these industries, we will not make it. Yeah. And, 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 and back these to are your, all about, these are yeah. all about, these are all about cultural shifts, right? And what marketing does at its core is it tries to impact culture. And I think, you exactly. know, in, in thinking about it and reflecting on what you're saying, which again is, 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 is so insightful. Um, is that I guess where culture has begun to change again is in that day-to-day behavior, right? Like it's how can we drive less? Um, you know, how can we compost those types of things, which no one is saying is, is, is unimportant. I mean, it's, it's, it is important. No, but no, no. Culture it has is, not, yes. right. But culture has not changed around really looking at yourself as, you know, a financial person as well, whether it's a pension fund, whether it's active investing, whether it's whatever your, yeah. wherever your money is making money. 
and that being something that's going to have such an impact on, on, on the planet. Fascinating. And it's also, you know, going back to the, yeah, and it's also going back to the fact that many people everywhere in the world will feel, you know, what can I do? I'm alone. You know, I, you know, I cannot change the world, but imagine that you might buy actually buying investment, having a pension saving, you know, a mutual fund or, a fund or any financial product, you are actually having a ticket. You have bought yourself a ticket to the global game. And you are participating every day in a global game. And if we all people understand that, then can they, can they can actually understand that, yeah, I cannot do, you know, I can do things in, in the state of New Jersey and New York, but I cannot do changes in China. Yes, my friend, together we all are uh, uh, able to do that by investing or divesting or, you know, reshuffling money from what is not sustainable to what is sustainable because then you can impact globally because the financial toolbox is global. So it's there we just need to use it you know we need to get people to to understand it and that goes back to the marketing you know financial industry is the the dying dinosaur of marketing because we are so poor and underdeveloped in terms of how we market and also how we explain in the marketing to people how these things are sort of interlinked with each other and i think it has to do with not only with the financial industry but with many other companies that they are not when they have good products and services they are too hesitant to market them too much because they feel that yeah but the, on the other side we have all these other products that are not good and that goes back to the fact that they are not honest in a way that what they are trying to achieve and being honest in terms of saying that we you know we don't have all the solutions we don't know you know we don't have answers to all the questions, but this is what we're trying to do. And be join us, you know, be part of what our attempt to do something. Uh, and this is something that companies are very poor in understanding. A financial industry is the worst of all because if you look around the world and if you go to the big big players and the small players, trying to understand what do they actually, what do you get when you invest in these kind of sustainable investment products. There are very few that will be able to tangibly explain to you what do you get. That's why it's so hard to sell them. That makes that, that makes sense. And um, I guess what I'm thinking is trying to understand is, you know, ultimately, um, you know, there are a number of stakeholders in that, all the way down, obviously, to the individual investor who's going to have to figure out how they're going to, you know, manage. Uh, the climate, over, you know, as as uh, as they get on in the years and, and their children and grandchildren. So, I mean, there's obviously a, uh, I think, somewhat of a um, of a call for individuals to market this themselves. But ultimately, who 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 bears the primary responsibility for the education of this? I guess you know. So, so it's interesting. It's what what you're almost saying is that the financial services industry needs to be educated and then also become the educators, I guess, of all of this. Yeah, but you have this traditional thing that financial industry sort of, a, how you call it, attracts the, 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 the brightest, I would say also to some extent, the greediest people as well. And the people that are very talented in a way how they can innovate things, uh, financial products, uh, schemes, uh, you know, uh, all different kinds of things that can develop, uh, you know, uh, the revenue streams, and if if the motivation of financial industry is to to make money for the next ten, fifteen years, the next five years, uh, it needs to sort of start understanding how we can approach the client groups with explaining how are they part of the solution, how is financial industry part of the solution for prosperity of this planet. 
that question hasn't been answered yet. Many people will be critical and say, it's not, but that answer is not that good because financial industry is central in the shift. So you have, you know, if you disregard all the political views, you know, being in left, right, center, doesn't matter. It comes to the question, how do you use the global monster or the global beauty of the financial industry and toolbox to to create prosperity? And that's something that's something that we really sort of uh, need to uh, discuss both, you know, individually in the industry, but I, I think also going back to the to the people. So how do I, as a financial institution, the, the things that I run here in Switzerland for clients, how does that contribute to their prosperity and their children's prosperity on the sustainability point of view through my investments? That is that that is what I need to show. Yeah, and yeah. that's something that the industry is very bad in showing. And if you look, I mean, U.S. has been a bit late on this train. It's it's picking up, and everybody knows. We all know and that that's where the big money is. That's where the change will come. That's that where the scale will come. But if it's not coming in, you know, this year, next year, then we are missing that train. Yeah. Um, no, I think that that's a warning that uh, you know needs to be heeded. Um, and uh, I think the good news is that. Um, you know, major stakeholders in the U.S. and, and major influencers are on board with that. Um, and even though the federal government may not be a leader uh, in that movement, you know, because of our federal system, the states have a lot of power, and there are many states who are who are leading that. Um, so, you know, Sasha, I think I think we'll end with that. Um, and uh, you know, first, I want to thank you for for appearing on uh, raising your antenna. Uh, but also just for being um, both uh, a voice of advocacy and reason, um, especially from your perch uh, in financial services, uh, you know, that there's, that there's at least from, from what I read and what I see, there's a dearth of voices like yours out there, um, which, you know, are both authoritative um, and also really insightful. So thank you for that. Um, you know, I lo- you know, you and I have spoken about a few collaborations that we hope to do, and uh, hopefully, once l- this craziness passes, we'll be able to figure that out again. But until then, first of all, stay safe and healthy, uh, and uh, look thanks a lot. To- yeah, and look forward to speaking soon. And another episode of Raising Your Antenna is in the books. I hope you enjoyed today's episode, and look forward to connecting again next week. Raising Your Antenna is a weekly podcast hosted by yours truly, Keith Zakheim, that features the movers and shakers and key influencers of the B2B technology industry. Our guests are leading revolutions and disruptions in the mobility, clean energy, healthcare, and real estate technology industries. Raising Your Antenna is brought to you by Antenna Group, a full-service digital marketing and public relations agency that focuses on the B2B technology industry. Please be in touch with me on Twitter at czakheim with any feedback about this podcast. And check out Antenna Group at www.antennagroup.com if your organization is looking for a really smart and good-looking marketing and public relations partner.